Hi, this is Ian Harvey, Tokyo US brand manager. I'm here with Caitlin Miller. Caitlin is a member of the 2018 US Olympic team. She has 33 World Cup starts. She has five US national championship podiums and one US national championships win in the 2016 classic sprint. She retired in the spring of 2020 and is now working as the youth and introductory program director for NENSA. Caitlin's 29. Thanks a lot for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me, Ian. Happy yeah. to be here. Cool. Um, can you, well, let's start off by, if you could please tell us where you grew up and how you started skiing and then eventually ski racing. Yeah, so I grew up in Elmore, Vermont, partway between Crassbury and Stowe. And my first real introduction to, to skiing was with the Stowe Bill Coke League program. Um, and, and just you know, skiing in the woods with friends and family. We did a lot of adventuring, um, backcountry skiing. And, um, and so that was sort of my, my pre preliminary introduction. As I, as I got a little older, I started going up to Crassberry um, and training with that junior program. And that's when I started working with Peppa and doing some more racing. Um, after, after my junior time as a junior, I went on to ski for four years at Bowdoin College. And that was a really, really fun time um, in my ski career. I really enjoyed the team element of, of college racing. So, yeah, that's sort of, that was my trajectory. But, yeah, I grew up in Vermont now, grew up in Vermont skiing. And, yeah. Who was coaching then? It, at uh, Bowdoin. Yeah. Nathan also, Brooke. Okay, he's still there, right? Yes, he is. Yep, oh, yep. Perfect. Yeah. So did you grow up in a skiing family? Yeah. So my parents, not, not, a, no racing at all in my family, but my parents always skied and um, they got my sister and me out there when we were, you know, tiny little people <laughs> on little strap on skis shuffling along. Um, so yeah, it was just something our whole family did and enjoyed doing together. And I grew up, um, my sister and I were homeschooled and we actually grew up, my mom worked at some different ski shops throughout our childhood. And so including the, this remote cabin you can ski out to at the Trap Family Lodge in Stowe. So my sister and I sort of essentially grew up in touring centers doing homework, um, sometimes up at the cabin, sometimes in different like spots at, at the Trap Family Lodge, the Stowe Mountain Resort. Um, so yeah, sort of just very much a part of our childhood and lifestyle growing up. And I think you said you, the first club that you were uh, affiliated with was in Stowe. Mm -hmm. And shortly afterwards, you started working with Craftsbury. At what age were you when you started working with the Craftsbury team? Um, let's see, probably, probably like 12, 12 or 13. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. We would we'd been up we would go up there for events in the Crossway Marathon and everything, but didn't didn't do that much actual training or practices up there until I was twelve or thirteen. Yeah. yeah. But still that's pretty young. Mm -hmm. In this day and age, it seems like it's a very more or less you're looking at a few people in Anchorage with APU and it you know, you could see that now with BSF, but it hasn't happened yet, I don't think necessarily. Um, where a person grew up in a club 
and then ended up as an elite skier for that same club, except for a brief stint being away for college. Mm -hmm. Because Craftsbury does have an elite team and has for quite a while. That seems like a pretty unique thing. Whereas what happens in most places is they're, they have a junior club and then they go to a college. And then if they're an exceptional athlete like yourself, they go to an elite club, which mm -hmm. is somewhere on the other side of the country or, you know, somewhere else. So that's a pretty unique thing, you know, experience you've had. Can you talk about maybe how inspiring or rewarding it has been as an experience to grow up um, as a Crasbury little junior and then come back and then race for the Green Racing Project? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So I definitely feel really, really grateful to Jake and Judy and the Outdoor Center because this, I mean, the elite program wasn't around when I was a junior. There were, you know, some elite higher level athletes, but there wasn't a team per se. And so this is sort of the Crasbury Green Racing Project came into being um, with a lot of their hard work and dedication when I was in college. Um, so it's kind of <laughs> like it kept following the next step in, in the program and offerings at the Outdoor Center with that. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, I, I looked at a few, a few different programs, um, but there were a lot of draws for me at Crassberry and a lot of, I think a lot of the benefit to returning to that program was to work with my coach, Papa Milosheva, who already knew me as a person and an athlete. And we just had that base already built. And I, you know, felt like I'd skied really well under her as a junior and that we worked well together. And so that was, that was really important to me. Um, and I have, you know, a close relationship with a lot of, a lot of people at the center. I know a lot of the employees. It just, it was a community. It was a very comfortable place for me in addition to being home and in Vermont. Um, so yeah, that was, it's, it was really neat to come back um, after having been to college and step back into that network um, and that support system. It's also, you know, a lot has changed. It was, it was a new team. I got to meet a new, a lot of new people, a lot of new um, staff members at the outdoor center, some new coaches. So it was, it was nice to have some, some similarities and some, some new change um, to step back into. And I think that's really important to me has been working with, the younger skiers and the younger athletes during my time on the GRP and especially being within your own program to sort of have that opportunity to give back to the same program that I benefited so much from just feels, feels really meaningful. Um, and it, it, I don't know, really energizes me to see, to see those younger, the younger athletes out there training and having fun. And yeah, it's, it's a really awesome experience. So the GRP just referred to is obviously Green Racing Project, in case some mm -hmm. don't know what that is. So um, you've been able to observe Craftsbury for basically your whole life. Can you talk about the changes that the, that the Outdoor Center have gone through, just, just kind of from your perspective? Because it's pretty neat. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when I first started training up there. Pep has been there as long as I've been involved with the Outdoor Center. She's She's been around um, coaching, which is awesome. But the center itself has undergone a lot of changes with a, with a big start to those changes when Dick and Judy purchased the center, I believe in, in 2010, but I might be a little off on that, and um, made it into a nonprofit. And since that point, they've just been continuously adding adding programs and updating facilities and really following following through on the mission of 
environmental sustainability and access to the outdoors for the whole community, as well as the broader community, we have larger events. Um, so seeing those just those that progression of change um, is really awesome. I mean, when I when I was a junior, I just think about, you know, take one example of small example, but the gym alone, we were we would do when I was a junior, we'd do strength in this like smallish basement room with carpeting in in the bottom of one of the dorm buildings. And then we would use the the like prototype ski ergs and they were more just like propped up rowing ergs with these funky handles and like the the attic portion of the boathouse. Um, and now, you know, now there's an incredible gym facility that, you know, all the all the elite teams and the junior teams and the community members can use different different setup right now with the pandemic, but in, you know, in normal times, it's it's a really awesome facility that everyone can can move in and out of and use. Um, and more recently, you know, so just like step by step progress on on what they're updating. Currently we're um enjoying the new roller loop, which is incredible. That's been a that's been a work in progress for a while and it's, you know, the final touches are have gone on and um it's usable now and it's it's really awesome. And um that with the coupled with the the new biathlon range. So we have a range on on a paved roller loop, which has been, yeah, a really, really awesome new addition. Um, so yeah, just a lot of changes, a lot of good changes. Um, really, really awesome to see, really fun community to be a part of. So one really cool aspect of skiing for Craftsbury as a, let's say 12 year old, and then coming back as an Olympian and as a, an elite athlete, skiing more or less those same trails. They've been widened some since then, but for the most part, the trails are the same as they used to be. It must be a pretty cool realization kind of to ski the same trails and to notice that you're so much stronger and faster and, and the hills that used to seem like they were huge now seem small, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, did you have those thoughts when you were skiing the trails the last few years? Yeah, for sure. So when I was younger in the Craster Marathon used to run from Highland Lodge in Greensboro to the outdoor center is like a 25k point to point. They also had a 50k version with a little added on loop. Um, and that used to be an event that I did with my family and my friends and there were food stops and I don't know, it took us a really long time. <laughs> we were just, you know, we were out there for the day eating and skiing and having fun. And now I'll do that as like, part of an OD and it's only a small section of the OD and, and, or I'll ski like out and back to Highland Lodge. And it's just, it's, it's so many memories along that trail, but also to realize that I'm doing it a little faster than when I was 10. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely do notice that. Um, it's also neat, like the newer, the 5k is newer than when I was a, a junior, but I raced the 5k all through college and just, you know, not necessarily time differences, but just feeling stronger, able to like ski some of those hills differently. Um, longer I was on, on the green racing project is definitely, yeah, neat to kind of see those improvements a little bit. Sure. So let's talk about when you were with the green racing project, the training group of women that you were training with was very competitive and I think pretty special. Some of your teammates were Ida Sargent, Caitlin Patterson, Liz Guinea, and then of course yourself and you had some others. But that's a really core, super strong core there. Um, can you talk about how it was to be a member of the Green Racing Project and to have such training partners? And what stands out about this program in your experience? 
Yeah. Um, I think I'm so grateful to have had to have been able to be on a team with that, with that group of women. And I definitely miss, I miss having that where we're all still friends. I definitely miss spending more time with them. Um, that's definitely a special thing about, about being an athlete with your teammates is, um, just that level of support and time together is, is really something special. Um, and yeah, I think from a, from a training perspective, having that, that strength in a program, there's so much to learn from each other. And, um, everyone has, has different strengths, you know? And so I think you really, each workout, um, you can really, you, you can learn someone from some, something from someone else. Um, and I think that's, that's a really big benefit. And so I, yeah, I've just learned so much from my teammates, not just from technical standpoints, but different strengths and different sections for different workouts, but also kind of the mental side of, of racing and dealing with training instruction, your training and conversations about how, you know, how, how you take on a certain workout. Um, and so I think, I think that's super valuable just to have a sounding board within your team as well as with your coach um, is huge. That's, that was hugely beneficial. I think as a whole, the, the green racing project is pretty unique in terms of it, the structure of the setup. It's an incredibly supportive team. Um, and I, I honestly don't know how I would have been able to, to race for this long after college without the support of that team. And, um, and it's a really neat structure with the work, the work environment. And sort of we, we worked a set number of hours a year in exchange for housing and food support and travel support and race support. Um, so it was an incredible, incredibly supportive team from a financial perspective as well. And I think um, the work component contributed so much to quality of life and having, having something important outside your ski career at the outdoor center to sort of connect with the staff. And also it was an opportunity for us to connect with the other athletes at the outdoor center, the rowing team as well. We did a lot of, a lot of work with them. And so I think, and the community, it was a really awesome opportunity to connect with the community, get to know the community um, through different, different programming that we helped with and, and volunteer opportunities. And so I think I think that really stands out in a different, a different way and really convenient too that a lot of um, that work, we could flex around our training schedule, which was super helpful um, from that standpoint for the most part. And yeah, so I think that's, that's a really, another really unique feature of the program. Um, and I, I was really grateful to to be able to participate in different projects. And, you know, a lot of the projects and initiatives for the most part, you can sort of get involved in what you're interested in, where your strengths are, or maybe your degree is focused. And so it also feels a little bit like developing, you know, I believe there are so many life skills you develop as an athlete specifically, but also feeling like you could keep in touch with some other skills that you might use, you know, beyond your athletic career. So I wanted to ask you about that. Um, for example, Akio, who also skis for the Green Racing Project, told us about um, one part of his job, which was improving the efficiency of the heating of the buildings at Craftsbury. Can you yeah. tell us about some of the different projects or jobs you were involved in? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so one of, my, one of my jobs was heading up 
our weekly citizens trail race series with um, two of my teammates, Liz and Hallie, Liz Ginning, Hallie Grossman. And um, that was a really, really fun project in that we got to connect with a lot of our community members. And goodness, we had some we had some races where we had 80 people show up for a Tuesday night or Tuesday night trail race, um, which was really cool. It was really awesome to see that turnout. And so that, that was one of the projects um, that I was super involved with, with, you know, coming up with the courses, marking the trails. We um, ran series long points data so that we had, you know, overall winners at the end with some prizes from, from some sponsors and a pizza party. And yeah, so that was, that was a really fun project. I enjoyed, I enjoyed being involved in. I also um, coached a bit with the, the younger skiers in the program and also with our, our summer bike club, which is um, really neat to connect with kind of a group of kids who not all of them even skied. So it was a, sort of a different, different, subset of the population and that was that was cool also learned a lot about mountain biking myself by attempting to teach it to other people <laughs> um, and um let's see i also i did a lot of gardening the center has gardens that provide vegetables for the um the dining hall and uh let's see i worked for about three years as a milfoil support for our initiative to eradicate would be a we're not eradicating it because it's too it's too ingrained but um there's an invasive species in the lake a weed species called milfoil and so there's a there's a group of folks trying to pull as much of it out as possible so I, I helped with that for about three years um didn't actually do the diving but helped on helped on top <laughs> um yeah those are there's there's definitely more but those are the one that spring to mind um <laughs> at the moment Okay, sounds good, thank you. I wanna change topics here. Um, in my introduction, I mentioned that you have five US national championship podiums. Not only were you Olympian, not only do you have 33 uh, World Cup starts, but you have five national championship podiums and you also have 15, uh, you have 16 Super Tour podiums. All five of your U.S. national podiums and 15 of your 16 Super Tour podiums were all in the classic technique. Um, so that's one thing that kind of seems to be a little unique about your career is you were very one-sided in your strengths and weaknesses. So the first question I have for you is how gratifying was that skate sprint third place for you in Ishwaming in 2018? So it's funny, when, when you ask that, I actually... I did not remember that I ended up on the podium in that race. Wow. <laughs> Which is one of those trophy at the high, up front and center, you know, I did it. <laughs> yeah. No, and I think I think that speaks a little bit more to um well first of all, I I definitely have always I've known that I've been stronger at classic skiing. I had never actually looked at my stats through that lens before. It's that's it was pretty lopsided. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would say, I would say probably the reason that doesn't stick out in my mind so much is I think I had some, some significantly stronger skate races that just didn't have that, you know, a flashy result or a stat that would, that would really stand out in any way. Um, 
I do, I do definitely remember that race. And I'm, I'm surprised that I did not remember that it was my only super tour skate podium, but yeah, I didn't remember that. Um, but yeah. No. Caitlin, yeah. I'm surprised by your response, I have to say, because yeah. from my perspective, I, you know, I'm just observing races, your races uh, in person over the years. It was kind of obvious to me that whenever there was a classic race in if any length, you know, from from the longer race all the way down to the sprint, especially the sprint, you were always a contender when it was a domestic race, always. Mm -hmm. And in the skate, I kind of felt like you were never a contender. Yeah, and, no, and I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. I'm surprised that you weren't as aware, or maybe you are were as aware, but it didn't sound like you were as aware of it. No, I was I was certainly aware of like the discrepancy. I just was not aware that that was my I wasn't aware that I'd actually even had a skate podium in this it was more oh, just okay. a specific race that I like don't on I mean I remember the race but I have no memory of the result actually <laughs> yeah no definitely aware of definitely aware of the lopsidedness but I'd never yeah I'd never really put put numbers to it before <laughs> so we're going to get to your job a little bit later but I did mention that you're working with youth in in uh Nensa yeah um this question has definitely something to do with that. And that is, what do you think you could have done to become a better skater? Do you think that genetically you're just more suited to classic or, and there wasn't much you could have done to affect becoming a better skater? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, as part of the same question, do you have any advice for someone who's better at one ski technique compared to the other? Yeah, um, so I think, I, I think of myself as a, a fairly technical, skier like I think a lot of my strength my strength comes in my technique like I'm not I'm not the fittest skier out there and I, I like know that about myself and so something early on like really clicked with classic technique for me and it was still still a technique that I worked on um especially like building strength in the upper body for double pulling and there was always things I was you know picking away at with my classic technique but the vast majority of my effort went into my skate technique and really, really working on that. Um, and I would say, I would say it was incredibly slow and incredibly incremental, but I was, I, I do believe I was slowly improving on that front and, um, actually kind of getting back to your, to your other question. And, and this is one stat I do actually, I do know is my PR, or my personal best finish on the World Cup was in a 10K skate race. I think you did quite like, well in a pursuit as well. Yeah, I think I did well in a pursuit as well, but yeah. my my best skate, my best race on the World Cup is a skate race, which is like kind of shocking to me, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I had moments, like I had moments where like stuff clicked with my skate technique and with how I was feeling and those moments like keep you going in terms of working on something that's not your strength. And so I think seeing those glimpses was super motivating. Um, I also, I really enjoy the technical side of skiing. And so having, having something to work on that hard, seeing little improvements day to day, um, having a result like I did on the World Cup in Falun, um, having a really strong feeling uh, like distance skaters, it, it, yeah, it, it fuels the fire. Um, and so I think recommendation for, for people who have a similar differential is, is keep working on it. 
you know, like that, that work, it, it does start paying off. And um, I think having something to really focus on and chip away at can be pretty motivating. Um, you know, I, I felt like I was never bored when I was out skate roller skiing or doing a distance skate um, ski in the winter. Cause there was just always something for me to be thinking about. Um, and yeah, and I, I really enjoy that. Even now, if I like go out for a roller ski, I, st- I still think about think about those things and those cues and um, more so less from a technical standpoint. Um, other other areas I'd work on a bit with skating was I think sustainable power. Um, I think that you know I have for classic. I was obviously I was like decent at sprinting. My my double pole is pretty powerful, but I think. I lacked some springiness and power in my legs. And so that was something I was, you know, working with my coach to figure out how, how we develop some more sustainable power, um, which I think would have especially been beneficial in, in skate sprinting. And so definitely, you know, even just talking about it now, I get kind of like excited and I want to go work on it. <laughs> um, so definitely, yeah, um, definitely something I, I was working on my whole career and was aware of aware of that differential and it it kept me kept me pretty motivated super thanks yeah. um here's a question for you do you have a favorite race that you've ever done so it doesn't have to be a world cup race but you know any any race in your career when you look back at it kind of evokes some emotion or great memories yeah um I would definitely say the first race that jumps to mind is the 10K classic individual race in 2016 in Houghton at nationals. Um, I, I finished second and my teammate, Caitlin Patterson, that was her first ever national title. And I think what made, what made that race, I think it's the only race that I, in my entire career, that I ever cried after actually, (laughs) um, good or bad. It's the only one I ever shed a tear over. Um, and I think prior to that race, you know, after, after college, I wanted to keep skiing, wanted to see, see where I could go with it. And just, I still, I loved racing. I loved the sport. I had, you know, an incredible opportunity at Craftsbury, but I had no, I really had no expectations for myself. I sort of went into it being like, let's see what I can do. And I honestly never really expected or considered that I could be a top, a contender at the top of the domestic racing level, or that maybe I would possibly qualify for a world cup. And so I think I remember going into that race. I just had this like thought in my head. I was like, okay, don't let your, like your mind limit, like what your body's capable of. And so I just kind of went in with this really clear head and no expectations. And I think when I crossed the line and realized how the race had turned out, it just sort of was this moment of realizing that I was capable of, of competing at that level. And I think that was a, that was a really big turning point for me and a really, you know, I put in all the hard work and it was just, it was incredible to see it sort of pay off in that moment. And so I think that realization combined with like just my excitement and happiness for Caitlin's first first ever championship title and to sort of share we both like shared that excitement in that moment together so I'd say that was that was 
that race really stands out in my mind. Was that race before or after the national championship sprint in Houghton of the same year? Of the same that week? was before. Okay, it was before. Yeah. Yep. So I was, I was I was excited about that title too. But <laughs> I would have thought though. <laughs> that was maybe two days later or the next day was the, the when you won the national championship sprint race. Yeah. Jeez, I can't remember exactly. We may have had the skate races in between. Yeah, but it was within that same week. I can't remember the exact uh, timeline. I could not believe it went classic, classic skate, skate. I think. Okay. I think. And anyway, it was it was only it was the same week and yeah, within yeah. a few days. Um, so it's it's actually really interesting to hear you looking back at it, saying that's the only race I shed a tear over, and it's it was the most you know kind of a euphoric, most euphoric moment mm -hmm. of your career. A couple days before you won the individual national championship, that's really cool because, yeah, what made it special was the realization that you could compete at that level and sharing the podium with Caitlin when she wins her first national championship. That says something about you as a person, obviously, um, that that is the moment as compared to a couple days later when you won your first national championship. That's, mm -hmm. that's really cool. I, I uh, look up to that. Hmm. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, yeah that, was a, that was a good, good nationals, <laughs> all in all. Absolutely. Yeah. So your title is the Youth and Introductory Program Director for NENSA. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me, about what the job consists of and, and uh, kind of your day-to-day. -day. Yeah, um, so I, I cover the, the programming for youth and, and introductory programs at NENSA, um, so within our sort of our regional governing body. And um, so I sort of have different, different subsections within those broad um, broad umbrellas. And so I sort of, I coordinate our, our Bill Coke league program, which is all of our youth leagues for, for skiers sort of under, under the ages of 12, roughly. Um, and I also, so I organize their end of year, co-organize their end of year festival and sort of work with the clubs throughout the year. Um, I also, organize our, our Eastern High School Championships and U16 Championship events at the end of um, the end of March. And sort of under my, my introductory umbrella is um, working to, to host a Women's Day, a big Women's Day event for introducing women to the sport. Um, Can I, I also, yeah. Is that a different Women's Day than the one that Trina Hosmer usually organizes? Yeah, so we co we co-organize, yeah, okay. yeah. So I'm sort of the NENSA representative co-organizer for that. And she, she's, yeah, she's been great to work with. She's awesome. Um, she's so on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, I mean, everyone I've been working with so far, honestly, has been really great um, this year and getting to know folks. And I, I knew Trina before um, taking on this position. So it's been, it's been great to, to work with her more. And yeah, we've been plugging ahead with a new, uh, new model for this, for this year's Women's Day, as as we are with almost everything we're doing, um, and so another another program that sort of fits both within intro and youth is the the eastern portion of Nordic Rocks, which gets skis into schools so kids can can learn to ski with their classmates um, 
during gym time usually is when it's structured in. And it's just such an awesome program because it takes away a lot of, a lot of those barriers that kids face with getting access to the sport. Um, and so it kind of, you know, provides an introductory opportunity for, for any, any child who, who has that program at their school. And so, yeah, we're, we're working on, I'm working on expanding that. Um, and yeah, day to day right now is definitely a lot of, you know, organizing and computer time, but <laughs> we've, we've hosted a few uh, in-person events with the coaches clinic and um, app gap under kind of a new organizational structure for the pandemic. Um, we have a roller ski race coming up uh, that Justin's been working on really hard. Justin Beckwith, our, our competitive program director, um, that's coming up on Sunday at, at the outdoor center on the new roller ski loop, which is exciting. Um, and I would say the majority of our time right now is being spent looking towards this winter and sort of creating concrete conservative plans that that we believe like will be able to be implemented um that we can host so we can host safe events and you know there's a lot of restructuring a lot of thinking outside the box um and just find you know there's a lot of reasons people ski and just kind of really looking looking to how we can support engagement and facilitate facilitate that enjoyment of the sport even if it looks like super different um this year do you have a fleet of nordic rocks skis and do you have a nordic rocks van those are something i know bruce mansky used to drive around and those are pretty cool i don't well so i don't have any of the skis all the skis uh, our schools actually keep them uh, and i don't have a van but that does sound cool <laughs> Um, but I'm excited because one of, so I know like visiting, you know, I, I would visit schools for, for programming and, um, and I do actually think I originally thought, you know, none of the schools are going to be able to have people coming, even if they're in session. But, um, one of the local schools I work with here said, as long as you sign up ahead of time, you can still come. <laughs> so pretty excited about that, that I'll still be able to go, go help with some of the programming, visit some schools. So, Yeah. Just based on our conversation and knowing you, I think you're, it seems like you really enjoy contact with kids, helping kids. It's, you seem really well oriented for this job. I'm sure you're also very organized and such, but I mean, part of this bottom line is you have to like working with kids, right? Mm -hmm. um, you like working with kids from the sound of it, for sure. Yeah, is yeah. The most important, uh, enjoyable part of your job or? What do you enjoy most about what you do? Yeah, I would definitely say it's, it's, it's the kids and it's the, you know, the in-person engagement. And, you know, I've been meeting so many new people in the ski community, in the Eastern ski community, which has been, it's been really awesome. A lot of them have, it has been a lot of virtual meetings so far, but we have, I have been able to connect with folks at, at some of our in-person events. And so I'd say, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely getting to know people and, and working with the kids. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to some of our programming this winter where I'll have the opportunity to connect, connect with more people in person. And um, in addition to, to working with NENS, I'm also coaching once a week um, with the Crassery BKL program. And so that's been a really nice way to sort of see some, see some more folks on a regular basis and, um, and do some some actual on the ground coaching on a regular regular time frame. What was the name of that program? BCal. 
Oh, sorry, BKL. It's, oh, um, it's the, the Bill Coke League. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's great. So, I mean, I think that's really kind of important, you know, in order for you to lead this, the arm of NENSA, it makes sense you have a lot of, I know you already did that as part of your work program when you were at GRP, but, you know, if you're actually doing the job of coaching kids, it, it gives you a practical application and you can try things and I guess also maybe a credibility. Um, so that, that's great. Yeah, no, it's, an, it's, it's, yeah, I've been really happy with how, how it's worked out so far. Hmm. Grateful that Crasbury uh, is incorporating me into their, into their coaching schedule. It's been awesome. For sure. What do you think about, I mean, obviously I know what your opinion is going to be, but still it's, it's a great thing to have a 2018 Olympian who grew up in Vermont, skied her throughout her career in the area, and now you're employed in the ski industry, coaching kids, and you know, you're part of the army of all of us to try to promote and encourage people to take part in this amazing sport that we love so much. Yeah, I think it's really special, and I think yeah, I mean, I've benefited so much from everyone who's who was in these positions, you know, when I was growing up. And so I think you realize that that these programs and these opportunities and interactions with people in the ski world mean so much, or at least they, it meant so much to me. And it basically gave me, you know, an incredible opportunities. You learn so much through sport and um and, you know, essentially a career opportunity for the past six years that was really unique and rewarding. And so it, yeah, it feels really special to sort of be giving back to the programs and, and the community that's given so much to me. Um, and, you know, I feel like, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really great experience and neat to kind of come back to it with perspectives that I've gathered from being in other, you know, I, I came up through the Bill Coke League program and through, you know, the Eastern high schools and junior national racing. And so to have gone through that and then also to have been at, at the Super Tour, at the World Cup, at the Olympics and sort of have that perspective to look at these programs a little bit um, through a lens of, of how can we support these athletes who, who do want to get to that next level eventually in their career but also keeping in mind that the only and at least this is very true for me the only the only way I ended up getting there was because I I still loved the sport and still enjoyed what I was doing and so I think fundamentally for me it comes back to not not worrying really about that end goal for for kids really at any level and just supporting them in in doing their best and enjoying the sport loving the sport feeling that connection and that community and so I think that's, that's sort of the perspective that, that I bring back to it. I'm really glad to hear you say what you just said. I, and it's not a surprise, of course, but I really think that the fostering the desire or in, 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 and just kind of fostering a love for the activity of skiing and, you know, being outdoors and sliding on snow and all the different enjoyable technical aspects of it. You know, it's a simple. We love sliding on snow. We love being physically fit. You know, it's a beautiful mix of the two. That's so fundamental to people, bringing people in 
for the long term, but also when the desire is there and the interest is there, then you can facilitate the different levels of development where you give them what they need to progress. Yeah, yeah. Without exactly. that basic level of, of desire and interest and love, you know, all that's for nothing, obviously. Right. And I think, I think too, what's so important is whether, you know, whether you're introducing children to the sport who stay involved at a recreational level with, you know, their family for the rest of their life, or, you know, you're introducing children to the sport who end up following a path that, you know, that they, they make their way through the World Cup or the Olympics. Like, I think the end, the, the ultimate end goal I see in development is that, you know, we're, you're like you're saying you're instilling that love of gliding that love of snow that love of the sport and so it's something that regardless of your your path through your younger years you know you become an adult who who's involved and, and loves the sport you're like you're a, you know you're engaged you're active for life and maybe you know that's that's a love of the sport that you'll pass on to your children if you have children or your friends um, so I think that's yeah seeing that as sort of the the end goal for just a healthy active engaged life in sport. I was talking with Kyle Bratrud two days ago and he used the word burnout. I, I would say in part describing himself, he didn't use it exactly in that context, but, um, and so I was kind of exploring that a little bit in terms of if he was going to be a lifelong skier in his opinion, he's now working for a, a district court in Denver, Colorado. Mm-hmm. which means your outdoor opportunities, at least, you know, it's not 20 minutes to, anyway, um, I asked him if he was going to be a lifelong skier and without hesitation, he said, well, yes, of course, you know, that's, that's no, he didn't have to think for one second, even though he used the word burnout, uh, mm-hmm. not necessarily describing himself, but it was very gratifying to hear that. To me, that would have been a kind of tragic to, yeah. you know, now and then you hear about someone especially someone who tried out for an Olympic team, you know, and sacrificed for so many years, perhaps didn't make the Olympic team. And then it's just like, that's it. I'm done. And I guess somehow all that training, all that sacrifice kind of is for naught. And, and it's almost like a bitter feeling as compared to a, a gratitude about, and I understand where some of these people are coming from, but it's in conflict with love for the sport and the activity and, and being outdoors in nature and maybe running into a moose or something when you're out skiing and all these magical moments you can have, not to mention seeing skiing through the eyes of children, which is also very magical. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that focus and, and um, I'm, I'm really glad to be a giddy 52 year old master skier, whether I race or not, I don't care. You know, it's all about just being out there and, and getting a ton of joy from the activity as well as health and longevity, hopefully and all that, but you know, all the different benefits, but bottom line, we're just people that love sliding around on skis and, and also the physical act aspect of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Certainly. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, anything else you'd like to talk about your job that I didn't maybe touch on or, or lead into for you? Um, I think you did a pretty good job. <laughs> yeah, your questions. Vince <laughs> is an organization. To me, they were kind of the original regional division, and they've always functioned at a very high level. Um, have you got much of a point of reference on NENSA? 
in terms of where they've been and where they're going? You haven't been yeah. with them for too long. Um, no, I mean, I haven't, I obviously haven't been with them for all that long, but I think what really strikes me sort of joining, joining the Nensa team is just the energy and the effort behind sort of serving, serving this regional community and just the drive and the motivation to, to be relevant, to stay relevant, to, um, to sort of work, work on the ground with our different clubs, um, and just such like a dedication to to skiers at all levels and all ages in the area and and just i feel like there's constant constant movement forward on okay what what can we do better how can we do this differently and i think that's a that's especially brought brought to the forefront right now with the pandemic and sort of you know in what ways do we pivot and restructure our programming and how do we still you know support all of these skiers to stay engaged. Like what can we do as an organization? How can we support our clubs? How can we, you know, maybe be a resource for information um, and provide alternative, alternative ways of learning? You know, we, our coaches symposium um, that we had a few weeks ago went virtual. And um, I think it was actually a really neat opportunity to bring in folks from further afield who wouldn't have been able to come to an in-person clinic. Um, and we had a lot of, a lot of folks attend some really great conversations, a lot of great learning. And so I think, you know, while we would have all preferred to have been together in person, I think there were some, there were some really awesome opportunities that arose from, from the way it was structured. And we still did host, you know, a local in-person clinics for, for folks um, within the, within the regional area that, that could travel. Um, so it was a kind of like a hybrid system, if you will, even though that term is <laughs> fairly overused these days, I think it, it worked well. Um, and yeah, looking, looking towards the winter, I mean, the amount of, the amount of effort as, as a team at Nensa and working with clubs to, yeah, to figure out kind of our steps forward. I mean, we started, started planning essentially in June, um, working through contingency plans and talking to hosts and, you know, everything's changing. So there's still, still a lot more work to do and a lot more follow-up, but I think, um, I hope, I hope that, that, you know, we're able to, to help our community through, through this time and, and beyond. The NINSA staff in terms of full-time employees, I, I realize NINSA has many partners mm. um, and there's a board of directors and so on, but the NINSA staff is you, Justin and Amy. Is there anyone else involved in NENSA? So those are the three full-time staff members. Amy's the executive director. Justin's the competitive program director. And I'm using intros we mentioned. And then we have um, Preston Noon, who's our, he works part-time for us and part-time for USBA. And he's the communications manager. Um, so the four of us are, are the unit. So my observation is, I think NENSA absolutely let's say set the standard, but absolutely continues to set the standard for a regional association and governing body the way, you know, the way NINSA is. Um, NINSA is extremely pragmatic, the way, the way you all deal with it, challenges. I don't think you ever forget who you are, who you serve, and what your mission statement is. You know, you're, you're very, you seem to address the basics better than anybody by far, and in a regular, consistent manner, 
Um, one, let's say a, a basic example of this would be how you've not only dealt with the pandemic and dealt with the, the fluorine, non-fluorinated issue, which I think you've done really well with, but also, for example, for the coming winter, how you've dealt with the waxing dilemma, especially not only with Eastern Cups, but also with junior racing. Mm -hmm. I think that the NINS has got the best policy. And I'm speaking as the head of TOCO of the United States, we've been the official wax of NENSA for something mm -hmm. like 18 years now. Yep, yep, that's awesome. And, and I'm saying, I think this is the best policy, what NENSA did, and the, what NENSA's policy is, is to say flooring free. Mm -hmm. Not yep. to say, okay, TOCO's been with us for 20 years, so you have to use TOCO waxes and flooring free or something like that. I, I really think that NENSA went the best route by simply saying flooring free, and with all the different restrictions, um, it's, it's very fundamental, very basic, very practical and pragmatic. That's just one example of very many things that NENSA is doing and the decisions that NENSA has made, which I, I really admire the way that they've been handled in contrast to some of the other regions where I think that I'm not really sure where they're coming from in terms of some of the decisions they've made, but they've certainly made things more difficult for themselves, mm -hmm. for hosts, for participants, more difficult, more expensive, more complicated, more logistics, mm -hmm. and, um, and just simply less, let's say, user-friendly. And, and that's across the board, not just waxing, but across the board. So I really think that NENSA has done a fantastic job and continues to do that. So I just want to take the opportunity to say hats off and um, and a job well done. Well, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. And, and I'm very glad to see that Nordic Rocks also is is happening in New England because that's, I think, mm -hmm. a really important program. So good job. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've, I've really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed getting to know that program and, um, and, and working with and getting to know some of the, the teachers and working to expand it. Yeah. Super. So shifting gears again, I'd like to ask you, I know, first, I've been the Toco glove designer since there have been Toco gloves and longer. Um, in addition, you've got famously cold hands. So <laughs> I'd like to hear about your favorite Toco glove model and why. Yes. Um, so I really like the, the Toasty Man. Um, and especially when you came out with like the extra warm version of the Toasty Man when it got extra insulation. Basically, they were like sleeping bags for my hands, which I know most people probably don't think that sounds like a great thing to go skiing with, but um, it, yeah, I mean, I, I race in mittens too, in addition to just training in them. Um, and yeah, I love, I love those mittens. And I think, I think it's, uh, let's see, Felicia Giesier and, and Rosie Frankowski are also in, in this cold hand club. And yeah, we were all real, really excited about the toasty mitten. <laughs> Uh, toasty mitten was our introductory quote-unquote sleeping bag mitten um it's uh it's got a nylon ripstop shell and a whole bunch of prima loft fill in it but mm -hmm. the toasty mitten was more of a mid-weight mitten we came up with a toasty thermo two years ago and i think that's the one that you're talking about yeah. when you say the, the more insulation so it's called the toasty thermo it's got three times the insulation as the toasty mitten which has been discontinued since then because the toasty thermo has been so popular and the insulation doesn't seem to at all come at the expense of fitting through a pole strap, which is traditionally an issue with overfilled mittens. But the material is so supple, kind of like a sleeping bag, 
um, it, would you say there's no real compromise? It fits to a pole strap. Absolutely yeah. no problem. Yeah. And it's interesting because I used to always, I used to always get larger pole straps because I always had large mittens <laughs> and I've actually gone back to like a small medium pole strap because I can fit, I can actually fit the mitten in there. And what I really like about it is just, yeah, how you're saying like how supple it is and how you can really, you know, I, I can like really feel like I'm really grabbing my poles and they're not stiff or bulky. So it's like the warmth without any of the added like downsides of wearing a larger mitten. Cool. This means a lot coming from you because you've had famously cold hands and I know there are a ton of people out there also. My wife is one of them and she's one of my test pilots for, for these types of gloves where I need to be very sensitive to, you know, what I feel isn't necessarily what other people feel. So it's good to have test yep. pilots with chronically cold hands. Yep. <laughs> so I know this is an intimidating question, but what do you see yourself doing in 10 years and where? Yeah. Um, goodness. Let's see. Definitely still involved with the ski world. I don't see that, that changing. Um, cool. And yeah. And I mean, right now I've been pretty darn content in Vermont. <laughs> so I'm not guaranteeing I'll still be in Vermont in 10 years, but it wouldn't be totally unrealistic. Um, and I would say maybe, maybe long-term goals. I'd love to have a small farm with sheep and vegetables. I'm, I'm really, I have a strong interest in like agroecology and local and sustainable food production. And so I yeah, that's my, my son may not be 10 years, but someday dream goal is to have a, have a small farm. Wow. Cool. Yeah. No goats. Uh, I can, I can be talked into goats. My, my like sheep, my thing with having sheep is that I also love to knit. And so I, I really like the idea of being able to use fiber from my own farm to knit. But I also do like goat cheese, so. <laughs> okay. so I figured the, the sheep were not necessarily about harvesting the sheep, but more about the wool. That's what I was thinking anyway. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. But what about, um, you know, milk, some kind of milk or cheese? Yep. Or... I'm just curious. Cause <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I, I think goats are, goats are great, too. I could, be, I could, I could consider goats. <laughs> yeah, same here. Um, so what is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? Yeah, so I was born and raised in New Jersey, actually, until I was almost seven. Oh. Um, and we would, we had friends in Vermont, so we'd come up to Vermont. So that's when I sort of started skiing. But for the most part, I would, I would put my skis on and ski on the rugs in our house or like the grass in the backyard <laughs> when we didn't have snow, which we didn't have that much snow because it was New Jersey. Um, and yeah, so actually my first like, semi-serious sport was figure skating oh. um as growing up and um yeah eventually my family or my mom was like you cannot do figure skating and skiing this is like <laughs> I don't think this is going to be sustainable but I was given the choice and I'm glad I chose skiing although I still do really like figure skating <laughs> I think skiing had more more longevity in the sport for me um, I think it helped. I think the figure, the early year figure skating helped with my balance though, a lot when I fully went with skiing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Um, I think this is something that 
that I focus on as an athlete, but I think has become more apparent to me sort of taking a step away from my career and sort of looking back on it in a certain extent is that, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't about the results. Yes. The results are what are what get you places and provide these opportunities. But I think when I, when I kind of take a step back, I realize that um, what really, what really matters is, is sort of the, the people you meet, the experience you have, like the feelings, the adventures, that's, that's really what sticks with you. Um, and that's really what you carry, you carry on into your life. And so I think just, you know, focusing on that and, and the results will come, um, as an athlete. And I think, yeah, I think especially with, with distance from my career is what I realized that's, that's what I've taken away with me. And during my career, that was what I enjoyed the most. That's what I got the most, um, the most enjoyment out of were, were those memories, were those, were those times with friends and, and teammates, you know, the happy fun times, also the times when your teammates like helped you through a rough patch um, and just sort of all the crazy, all the crazy adventures that come with, with ski racing. And um, yes, there's certainly results that I do remember, but, but it was really, you know, also those results wouldn't have really meant much if, if my team, um, wasn't there to celebrate with me and to have gotten me there or my coaches or my techs. And I think that's what you realize is it's, it's such a, even though it is an individual sport, it's such a, a team effort and team being like your whole support network, including your actual teammates. And so I think, yeah, it's, it's really about that. It's about, it's about the community you create the memories and, and really less about just a result on paper. I think that is extremely healthy, these, that attitude. And it's interesting that you have that attitude because you came, I don't want to define your career necessarily, but um, I think you came from a place that wasn't, you weren't super successful as a junior, were you? No, I mean, I had some decent, decent results at, at JOs or JNs now. Um, and I would, my college, my college career took a turn for the better my junior and senior year, but it still wasn't, it wasn't a standout college career by any, by any stretch of the imagination. I had, I had two podiums, um, in, in EISA racing. So yeah, no, it was definitely a, a different path or trajectory than I would say many athletes take to professional racing. So let me put it this way. If someone were to observed you between the ages of 16 and 22, they, I think, normally would not have, have um, identified you as a, as a 2018 Olympian or mm -hmm. a national champion in 2016. And yeah. so my point is you came a long way and progressed. You continue to progress as, a, as an elite skier over the years, kind of people use the word grinding it out, which sometimes has negative connotations, but, but just working and working and working and continue to prove, one might think that a person in, in a position like that would be very results oriented and kind of driven to just making a team or, or driven to winning this. So it's really, I think, important to identify that your motivation and your, in your not all of your motivation, but um, your pleasure and the meaning 
satisfaction came from your relationships and the experience and the journey as compared to focusing on results, which as, you, sure. as you acknowledged were somewhat important, but, but still it wasn't part of the grand experience for you. Yeah, it was, it was really about, really about the process and even just having small process related training goals were, were really what, what kept me motivated and kept me moving in that direction. Yeah. And, and of course, focusing on what you mentioned you were focused on and enjoying means longevity. It means uh, balance and, and, you know, a certain level of enjoyment, which is necessary to mm-hmm. continue at a high level um, as compared to just focusing on results where um, really the enjoyment is completely gone and it's more of a transaction. I'm going to invest this much and I'm expecting to get this much out of it and then I'm going to move on. You know, that's, that's not what we're about, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. I understand that mentality, but I think it's somewhat self-defeating. So mm-hmm. I'm really, uh, especially given your career, how you were not a success early on and then just went after it and stuck with it and stuck with it and worked and worked and progressed to the point where you mm-hmm. won national championships and you were an Olympian. I mean, that's quite successful, obviously. Um, it's, it's, you know what you're talking about is what I'm saying. And, mm-hmm. and so that's really gratifying to hear. I think it's important and a very important message. You're in the right job. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's definitely something I, I take to, to my new career now, which is, you know, everyone, you know, different athletes, different skiers, they have different paths to, to the same goal, you know, or the same, the same end result. So I think realizing that and encouraging that is, is important. Yeah. I, uh, there's another aspect of working with kids, especially with juniors that I think is, um, the idea of late bloomers and, and kids that mature early and the problems that especially maturing early can create because you mature early, you achieve success very quickly and easily. And then when everyone else catches up and you stop enjoying that advantage, how do you deal with it? And that can be traumatic and difficult. I was lucky enough to be a late bloomer and I had to work my tail off to be competitive, which I wasn't really until I started growing. And then all of a sudden everything came super easy and I was successful as my later years as a junior and then as a senior. But I was looking back, it was in great part because I, I had to struggle so much mm-hmm. as, a, as an undersized little kid, you know? Yeah, no, that's definitely, that's, that's a really important, important thing you bring up there. And I think, yeah, just trying to be cognizant of those of those early developers because when you when you do you know when you are a later developer you do you spend so much more time you know maybe focusing on your technique focusing on the small things like working super hard to to get to that next step and i think um when when athletes have so much success early they may they may you know do more racing or there's less focus on the, on the small little details that actually are such huge building blocks um, for a developing athlete. So I think, yeah, just, just trying to, even, even if an athlete is having that, that success, just still bringing it back to those foundational, those foundational technique cues or development processes that will, will help them get through that point when everyone else catches up, that they're still, they're still in that game. Um, 
because they still have that foundation that that would have been built if they were a later developer as well. And there's also the aspect of focusing on results, which is a mm -hmm. it's horrible in either scenario. If you're an early developer, you're going to be successful. And then part of your enjoyment or most of your enjoyment would probably come from winning races and doing well in races. And then when you yeah. lose that advantage, the enjoyment goes away because you're not going to be as successful. And so yeah, you know, there's no sure. longevity or enjoyment there. If you're a late bloomer and you're the least bit focused on results, you're probably going to quit before you grow because you're going to have to struggle and struggle and struggle and you're at a, you know, a, a strong disadvantage. And so by the time you finally were to have grown and then achieved, had a chance of being quite successful, you would have already quit because of the focus on results. So that focus on results as a junior, even, even in, uh, in my opinion, even 16, 17 year olds, I think is misguided in, in, in yields a lack of an it doesn't serve anybody as far as I'm concerned yeah I think that's yeah definitely the sense of like that's like a really extrinsic motivating factor that's maybe not it's not yeah like you're saying not the healthiest for for like long-term success or just enjoyment in the sport and I think that's definitely that's definitely something I think that you know parents and coaches can really can really um work work to create a healthy kind of a healthy um, environment around how how athletes interact with their results and you know really yeah like the result doesn't define you and finding intrinsic intrinsic motivating factors that that keep them going sort of regardless of what of what their result is and obviously you know it's it's human nature to get excited about a good result a bit bummed out about a bad one but just having not having that be the sole factor like you're saying is yeah and sort of really important. And I've talked about that aspect when it comes to juniors, but the reality is it's the same for elite athletes and it's the same for master skiers, the same for everybody. I've had some of my, as a, as a, as a no longer elite athlete, but just as a person who's jumped in marathons and citizens races for the last many, many years, pretty much all of my best results have come on days when I've had really good skis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and yeah, okay. I'll take credit for that. But the reality is I've also had some great races with not as good results and, and I've known it and I've been happy with my race. And that's an important, yeah. that's a really empowering and important thing to be able to gift yourself. Jesse Diggins is really good at that where mm -hmm. she might, she might be really proud of the effort she gave and all the things that she could, she could control. She was, she did very well. So she was happy with herself and, yeah. and people try to redefine that for you. And she does a good job of resisting that and kind yeah. of putting up those boundaries. Um, I think it's important for all of us to do. And it, it counts. It's kind of part of being nice to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And being like, no, like I did the best I could. And, and also sort of, yeah, sort of, I think what Jesse talks about a bit is setting, setting goals within the race that aren't actually related to the result. Like, you know, did I focus on this, on this section, or, you know, maybe I really nailed, nailed my warm up, um, and just, yeah. And realizing, okay, like, you know, I, I met the, I met those goals and that's, that's a success for me in my book. And I think when you, when you talk about having a good race that the result wasn't there for, I think that's sort of some of my races in skating, honestly, where I had some, some races I'm incredibly proud of and, 
and they, they felt incredible. And I, yeah, I, I sort of met all those small goals within my race and the result, the result wasn't anything someone would, you know, maybe the public eye would think was impressive, but for me, it was like a win in my book. And so I think that's sort of maybe building, building that into the culture around results is, is important. I agree. Another example of that for, for me uh, in college, I was generally, you know, top five in races. And there was this one race, which was a season opener. We just got in a foot of snow and it was just mashed potatoes, knee deep kind of a thing. And mm -hmm. my technique at the time was I used way too much knees, knee joint and quads and way too little hip joint. And I wasn't upright enough. In other words, I used my legs too much, way too much. Mm -hmm. And I didn't use an upper body enough, relatively speaking. And what that meant was in such deep mashed potato type snow is I was punching holes in the snow and, and not moving forward. And I knew that. And of course, the, the, uh, the smart person would say, well, just change your technique. I played around with it. At the time, I wasn't able to do that effectively. Since then, I've been able to. But we're talking about early years in college. I think it was my freshman year. Mm -hmm. And I ended up 15. And, but during the race, I had the sensations of I could go as hard as I could the whole time. And we all know as athletes, that's, that's when you know you're peaking or you're in superb shape. Yeah. And I finished the race and everyone asked me how my race went. And I was like, you know, great. I had a fantastic race. Knowing my results stunk for me relatively, but I knew I was in good form and I was skiing super well, except for not in deep snow. And that's yeah. one of those things. And then and the next day I ended up second. And yeah. as a freshman, that's really good. And, um, but it was one of those deals where I knew what the deal was and I knew my sensations and I allowed myself to enjoy what I knew I was experiencing, which was really good fitness, but I, I needed to work on my, on my technique, obviously, yeah. for the yeah. conditions. And I, I think that's really important. So I'm glad we're having this conversation, especially with you, given your position and opportunity to redefine to kind of help people, nudge people in that direction. Yeah, yeah, no, that's it, important. Caitlin, I alluded to this before, but um, I'm glad to see you not only staying in the industry, because we need to keep people like you in the industry, successful skiers with good perspectives and, and love for the sport and love for others in the sport. Of course, that's a key element. Um, so I'm really glad to see that you are you're working in the industry, helping others. And also you have a, an intention of staying in the industry, helping others for a long time. That's gratifying to see. I think it's something that we've been lacking a bit. Um, and so um, I'm glad to see that. And I thank you for spending this time with me and the American skiing public this morning. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing. I think that these interviews have been very popular. Yeah, no, they've been really great. I really appreciate you reaching out and I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you today. And yeah, and, and hearing hearing your perspective, and yeah, really, really great to talk. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, thanks, and hopefully uh, we'll be in touch soon. Yes. Um, as colleagues. <laughs> yes, <laughs> sounds good. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day.